0: The flows must be the object of deductions, preleavements that constitute a minimum of stock, and the signifying chain must be the object of detachments, detachments that constitute a minimum of mediations. A flow is coded insofar as detachments from the chain and deductions from the flows are effected in correspondence, united in a mutual embrace and this is already the highly perverse activity of local groups who arrange marriages on the surface of the primitive territoriality, a normal or non-pathological perversity, as Henry E.Y. would say, referring to other cases where a psychic work of selection, refinement, and calculation was manifested. And this is the case from the start, since there does not exist a pure nomad who can be afforded the satisfaction of drifting with the flows and singing direct filiation, but always a waiting to bear down, already deducting and detaching. The flow deductions constitute affiliative stock in the signifying chain, but inversely, the detachments from the chain constitute mobile debts of alliance that guide and direct the flows. On the blanket that serves as a familial stock, a phenol stones or cowries are made to circulate. There is a sort of vast cycle of flows of production and chains of inscription, and a lesser cycle, between the stocks of filiation that connect or encast, encastent, the flows, and the blocks of alliance that cause the chains to flow. Descent is at the same time flow of production and chain of inscription, stock of filiation and fluxion of alliance. Everything takes place as though the stock constituted a surface energy of inscription or recording, the potential energy of the apparent movement, but debt is the actual direction of this movement a kinetic energy that is determined by the respective paths of the gifts and counter-gifts on the surface. Among the Kula, the circulation of necklaces and bracelets comes to a standstill in certain places, on certain occasions, so that a stock may be reformed. There are no productive connections without disjunctions of filiation that appropriate them, but there are no disjunctions of filiation that do not reconstitute lateral connections across the alliances and pairings of persons. Not only the flows and the chains, but the fixed stocks and the mobile debts insofar as they in turn imply relations between chains and flows in both directions are in a state of perpetual relativity, their elements vary women, consumer goods, ritual objects, rights, prestige, status. If one postulates that somewhere there has to be a kind of equilibrium of prices, one is compelled to see in the manifest disequilibrium of the relations a pathological consequence, which one explains by saying that the supposedly closed system extends in one direction and opens as the prestations become wider and more complex. But such a conception is in contradiction with the primitive cold economy, which is without net investment, without money, or market, and without exchangeist commodity relations. The mainspring of such an economy is a veritable surplus value of code, each detachment from the chain produces on one side or the other in the flows of production phenomena of excess and deficiency, phenomena of lack and accumulation, which will be compensated for by non-exchangeable elements of the acquired prestige or distributed consumption type. The chief converts this perishable wealth into imperishable prestige through the medium of spectacular feasting. The ultimate consumers are in this way the original producers. Surplus value of code is the primitive form of surplus value, inasmuch as it corresponds to Moss's celebrated formula, the spirit of the thing given, or the force of circumstance that requires that gifts be reciprocated with interest, being territorial signs of desire and power, puissance, and principles of abundance and the fructification of wealth. Far from being a pathological consequence, the disequilibrium is functional and fundamental. Far from being the extension of a system that is at first closed, the opening is primary, founded in the heterogeneity of the elements that compose the prestations and that compensate for the disequilibrium by displacing it. In short, the detachments from the signifying chain, in accordance with the relations of alliance, engender surplus values of code at the level of the flows, whence are derived differences in status between the filiative lines, for example, the superior or inferior ranks of the givers and receivers of wives. The surplus value of code carries out the diverse operations of the primitive territorial machine, detaching segments from the chain, organizing selections from the flows, and allocating the portions to each person. The idea that primitive societies have no history, that they are dominated by archetypes and their repetition, is especially weak and inadequate. This idea was not conceived by ethnologists but by ideologists in the service of a tragic Judeo-Christian consciousness that they wished to credit with the invention of history. If what is called history is a dynamic and open social reality, in a state of functional disequilibrium, or an oscillating equilibrium, unstable and always compensated, comprising not only institutionalist conflicts but conflicts that generate changes, revolts, ruptures, and size zions, then primitive societies are fully inside history, and far distant from the stability, or even from the harmony, attributed to them in the name of a primacy of a unanimous group. The presence of history in every social machine plainly appears in the disharmonies that, as Levi Strauss says, bear the unmistakable stamp of time elapsed. It is true that there are several ways to interpret such disharmonies, ideally by the gap between the real institution and the assumed ideal model, morally, by invoking a structural bond between law and transgression, physically, as though it were a question of attrition that would cause the social machine to lose its capacity to wield its materials. But here too it seems that the correct interpretation would be, above all, actual and functional, it is in order to function that a social machine must not function well. This has been shown precisely with regard to the segmentary system, which is always destined to reconstitute itself on its own ruins, and likewise for the organization of the political function in these systems, which in effect is exercised only by indicating its own impotence. 9. Ethnologists are constantly saying that kinship rules are neither applied nor applicable to real marriages, not because these rules are ideal but rather because they determine critical points where the apparatus starts up again provided it is blocked and where it necessarily places itself in a negative relation to the group. Here it becomes apparent that the social machine is identical with the desiring machine. The social machine's limit is not attrition, but rather its misfirings, it can operate only by fits and starts, by grinding and breaking down, in spasms of minor explosions. The dysfunctions are an essential element of its variability to function, which is not the least important aspect of the system of cruelty. The death of a social machine has never been heralded by a disharmony or a dysfunction, on the contrary, social machines make a habit of feeding on the contradictions they give rise to, on the crises they provoke, on the anxieties they engender, and on the infernal operations they regenerate. Capitalism has learned this, and has ceased doubting itself, while even socialists have abandoned belief in the possibility of capitalism's natural death by attrition. No one has ever died from contradictions. And the more it breaks down, the more it schizophrenizes, the better it works, the American way. But this is already the point of view required given a change of perspective for examining the primitive socius, the territorial machine for declining alliances and filiations. This machine is segmentary because, Through its double apparatus of tribe and lineage, it cuts up segments of varying lengths, genealogical filiative units of major, minor, and minimal lineages, with their hierarchy, their respective chiefs, their elders who guard the stocks and organize marriages, territorial tribal units of primary, secondary, and tertiary sections, also having their dominant roles and their alliances. The point of separation between the tribal sections becomes the point of divergence in the clan structure of the lineages associated with each section. For, as we have seen, clans and their lineages are not distinct corporate groups, but are embodied in local communities, through which they function structurally. Ten, The two systems intersect, each segment being associated with the flows and the chains, with the stocked flows and the passing flows. With selections from the flows and detachments from the chains, certain production projects are executed in the framework of the tribal system, others in the framework of the lineage system. The variability and relativity of the segments are responsible for all sorts of penetrations between the inalienable elements of filiation and the mobile elements of alliance. This is explained by the fact that the length of each segment or even its existence as such is determined only by its opposition to other segments in a series of interrelated stages. The segmentary machine mixes rivalries, conflicts, and ruptures throughout the variations of filiation and the fluctuations of alliance. The whole system evolves between two poles, that of fusion through opposition to other groups, and that of size Zion through the constant formation of new lineages aspiring to independence, with capitalization of alliances and filiation. From one pole to the other, all the misfirings and failures in a system that is constantly reborn of its own disharmonies. What does Jean Favret mean when she shows, along with other ethnologists, that the persistence of a segmentary organization requires paradoxically that its mechanisms be ineffectual enough so that fear remains the motor of the whole? And what is this fear? it would appear that social formations experienced a morbid and mournful foreboding of things to come, although what comes to them always comes from without, rushing in through their opening. Perhaps it is even for this reason that it arrives from without, they suffocate its inner potentiality, at the cost of the dysfunctions that constitute an integral part of the functioning of their system. The segmentary territorial machine makes use of size Zion to exorcise fusion, and impedes the concentration of power by maintaining the organs of chieftainry in a relationship of impotence with the group, as though the savages themselves sensed the rise of the imperial barbarian, who will come nonetheless from without and will overcode all their codes. But the greatest danger would be yet another dispersion, a size zion such that all the possibilities of coding would be suppressed, decoded flows, flowing on a blind, mute, Deterritorialized socius, such as the nightmare that the primitive social machine exorcises with all its forces and all its segmentary articulations. The primitive machine is not ignorant of exchange, commerce, and industry, it exorcises them, localizes them, cordons them off, and casts them, and maintains the merchant and the blacksmith in a subordinate position so that the flows of exchange and the flows of production do not manage to break the codes in favor of their abstract or fictional quantities. And isn't that also what Oedipus, the fear of incest, is about, the fear of a decoded flow? If capitalism is the universal truth, it is so in the sense that makes capitalism the negative of all social formations. It is the thing, the unamable, the generalized decoding of flows that reveals a contrario the secret of all these formations, coding the flows, and even overcoding them, rather than letting anything escape coding. Primitive societies are not outside history, rather, it is capitalism that is at the end of history, it is capitalism that results from a long history of contingencies and accidents, and that brings on this end. It cannot be said that the previous formations did not foresee this thing that only came from without by rising from within, and that at all costs had to be prevented from rising. Whence the possibility of a retrospective reading of all history in terms of capitalism. It is already possible to see signs of classes in pre-capitalist societies but ethnologists observe how difficult it is to distinguish those proto-classes from the castes organized by the imperial machine and from the rankings distributed by the segmentary primitive machine. The criteria that distinguish classes, castes, and ranks must not be sought in a fixity or a permeability, nor in a relative closing or opening, these criteria always reveal themselves to be deceptive, eminently misleading. But the ranks are inseparable from the primitive territorial coding process, just as castes are inseparable from the overcoding practiced by the imperial state, while classes are relative to the process of an industrial and commodity production decoded under the conditions of capitalism. All history can therefore be read under the sign of classes, but by observing the rules set forth by Marx, and bearing in mind that classes are the negative of castes and ranks for it is certain that the regime of decoding does not signify the absence of organization, but rather the most sombre organization, the harshest compatibility, with the axiomatic replacing the codes and incorporating them, always a contrario. 3. The problem of Oedipus. The full body of the earth is not without distinguishing characteristics. Suffering and dangerous, unique, universal, it falls back on production, on the agents and connections of production. But on it, too, everything is attached and inscribed, everything is attracted, miraculated. It is the basis of the disjunctive synthesis and its reproduction, a pure force of filiation or genealogy The full body is the unengendered, but filiation is the first character of inscription marked on this body. And we know the nature of this intensive filiation, this inclusive disjunction where everything divides, but into itself, and where the same being is everywhere, on every side, at every level, differing only in intensity. The same included being traverses indivisible distances on the full body, and passes through all the singularities, all the intensities of a synthesis that shifts and reproduces itself. It serves no purpose to recall that genealogical filiation is social rather than biological, for it is necessarily biosocial inasmuch as it is inscribed on the cosmic egg of the full body of the Earth. It has a mythical origin that is the one, or rather the primitive one too. Should one say the twins or the twin? Which divides and unites into itself the Namo, or the Namos? The disjunctive synthesis distributes the primordial ancestors, but each member of the primitive community is himself a complete full body, male and female, binding to itself all the partial objects, with variations that are solely intensive, and that correspond to the internal zigzag of the Dogon egg. Each one intensively repeats the entire genealogy for himself. And everywhere it is the same, at both ends of the indivisible distance and on every side, a litany of twins, an intense filiation. At the beginning of L.E. Renard Pale, Marcel Griel and Germain Dieterlin sketch out a splendid theory of the sign, The signs of filiation, guide signs, and master signs, signs of desire, intensive at first, which fall in a spiral and traverse a series of explosions before extending into images, figures, and drawings. If the full body falls back on the productive connections and inscribes them in a network of intensive and inclusive disjunctions, it still has to find again and reanimate lateral connections in the network itself, and it must attribute them to itself as though it were their cause. These are the two aspects of the full body, an enchanted surface of inscription, the fantastic law, or the apparent objective movement, but also a magical agent or fetish, the quasi-cause. It is not content to inscribe all things, it must act as if it produced them. It is necessary that the connections reappear in a form compatible with the inscribed disjunctions, even if they react in turn on the form of these disjunctions. Such is alliance, the second characteristic of inscription, Alliance imposes on the productive connections the extensive form of a pairing of persons, compatible with the disjunctions of inscription, but inversely reacts on inscription by determining an exclusive and restrictive use of these same disjunctions. It is therefore inevitable that Alliance be mythically represented as supervening at a certain moment in the filiative lines, although in another sense it is already there from time immemorial. Marcel Griel describes how, among the Dogons, something is produced at a certain moment, at the level and on the side of the eighth ancestor, a derailment of the disjunctions, which cease to be inclusive and become exclusive. Once this occurs, there is a dismembering of the full body, a cancelling of twinness, logemelite, a separation of the sexes marked by circumcision, but also a recomposition of the body according to a new model of connection or conjugation. An articulation of bodies for and between themselves, a lateral inscription with articulatory stones of alliance, in short, a whole arc of alliance. Point 11 Alliances never derive from filiations, nor can they be deduced from them. But, this principle once established, we must distinguish between two points of view the one economic and political, where alliance is there from time immemorial combining and declining itself with the extended filiative lineages that do not exist prior to alliances in a system assumed to be given in extended form, the other mythical, which shows how the extension of a system takes form and delimits itself, proceeding from intense and primordial filiative lineages that necessarily lose their inclusive or non-restrictive use. From this viewpoint the extended system is like a memory of alliance and of words, implying an active repression of the intense memory of filiation. For if genealogy and filiations are the object of an ever-vigilant memory, it is to the degree that they are already apprehended in an extensive sense that they certainly did not possess before the determinations of alliances conferred it on them. On the contrary, as intensive filiations they become the object of a separate memory, nocturnal and biocosmic the memory that indeed must suffer repression in order for the new extended memory to be established. We can better understand why the problem does not in the least consist of going from filiations to alliances, or of deducing the latter from the former. The problem is one of passing from an intensive energetic order to an extensive system, which comprises both qualitative alliances and extended filiations. Nothing is changed by the fact that the primary energy of the intensive order the Numen is an energy of filiation, for this intense filiation is not yet extended, and does not as yet comprise any distinction of persons, nor even a distinction of sexes, but only prepersonal variations in intensity, taking on the same twinness or bisexuality in differing degrees. The signs belonging to this order are therefore fundamentally neuter or ambiguous, according to an expression employed by Leibniz to designate a sign that can be plus as well as. It is a question of knowing how, starting from this primary intensity, it will be possible to pass to a system in extension where 1. The filiations will be filiations extended in the form of lineages, comprising distinctions of persons and of parental appellations, 2. The alliances will be at the same time qualitative relations, which the filiations presuppose as much as vice versa, 3, in short, the ambiguous intense signs will cease to be ambiguous and will become positive or negative. This may be seen clearly in a passage from Levi Strauss, explaining for the simple forms of marriage the prohibition of parallel cousins and the approbation of cross cousins, each marriage between two lines A and B bears a, plus, or, sign according to whether this couple results from a woman being lost to or acquired by line A or B. In this regard it is not important whether the regime of filiation is patrilineal or matrilineal. In a patrilineal or patrilocal regime, for example, related women are women lost, women brought in by marriage are women gained. Each family descended from these marriages thus bears a sign, which is determined, for the initial group, whether the children's mother is a daughter or a daughter-in-law. The sign changes in passing from the brother to the sister, since the brother gains a wife, while the sister is lost to her own family. But, as Levi Strauss remarks, one also changes signs in passing from one generation to the next, it depends upon whether, from the initial group's point of view, the father has received a wife, or the mother has been transferred outside whether the sons have the right to a woman or owe a sister. Certainly, in real life this difference does not mean that half the male cousins are destined to remain bachelors. However, at all events, it does express the law that a man cannot receive a wife except from the group from which a woman can be claimed, because in the previous generation a sister or a daughter was lost, while a brother owes a sister, or a father, a daughter, a To the outside world, if a woman was gained in the previous generation. The pivot couple, formed by an A man married to a B woman, obviously has two signs, according to whether it is envisaged from the viewpoint of A, or that of B, and the same is true for children. It is now only necessary to look at the cousin's generation to establish that all those in the relationship, plus plus, or, dash dash, are parallel to one another while all those in the relationship plus or dash plus are cross 12 but once the problem is put in this way it is less a question of applying a logical combinative apparatus governing an interplay of exchanges as levi strauss would have it than one of establishing a physical system that will express itself naturally in terms of debts it seems to us very significant that levi strauss himself invokes the coordinates of a physical system although he sees this as nothing more than a metaphor. In the physical system in extension, something passes through that is of the nature of an energy flow, plus or dash plus, something does not pass or remains blocked, plus plus or, and something blocks, or on the contrary causes, passage. Something or someone. In this system in extension there is no primary filiation, nor is there a first generation or an initial exchange, but there are always and already alliances, at the same time as the filiations are extended, expressing both what must remain blocked in the filiation and what must pass through in the alliance. The essential is not that the signs change according to the sexes and the generations, but that one passes from the intensive to the extensive, that is to say, from an order of ambiguous signs to an order of signs that are changing but determined. It is here that resorting to myth is indispensable, not because the myth would be a transposed or even an inverse representation of real relations in extension, but because only the myth can determine the intensive conditions of the system, the system of production included, in conformity with indigenous thought and practice. That is why a text of Marcel Greil's, which looks to myth for a principle that would explain the avunculate, seems decisive to us, and seems to avoid the reproach of idealism that usually greets this kind of attempt. We have a similar view of the recent article in which Adler and Cartree return to the question. Point 13. These authors are right in remarking that Levi Strauss's kinship Adam with its four relationships, brother-sister, husband-wife, father-son, maternal-uncle-sister's son presents itself as a ready-made whole from which the mother as such is strangely excluded, although, depending on the circumstances, she can be more or less a kinswoman or more or less an affine in relation to her children. Now this is indeed where the myth takes root, the myth that does not express but conditions. As Griel relates it, the Yorugu, breaking into the piece of placenta he has stolen, is like the brother of his mother, with whom he is united by that fact, this individual went away into the distance carrying with him a part of the nourishing placenta, which is to say a part of his own mother. He saw this organ as his own and as forming a part of his own person, in such a way that he identified himself with the one who gave birth to him. She was the matrix of the world, and he considered himself to be placed on the same plane as she from the viewpoint of the generations. He senses unconsciously his symbolic membership in his mother's generation and his detachment from the real generation of which he is a member. Being, according to him, of the same substance and generation as his mother, he likens himself to a male twin of his gene tricks, and the mythical rule of the union of two paired members proposes him as the ideal husband. Hence, in his capacity as pseudo-brother to his gene tricks, he should be in the position of his maternal uncle, the designated husband of this woman 14. Doubtless all the dramatis personae will be found to come into play from this point on, mother, father, son, mother's brother, son's sister. But it is evident and striking that these are not persons. Their names do not designate persons, but rather the intensive variations of a vibratory spiraling movement, inclusive disjunctions, necessarily twin states through which a subject passes on the cosmic egg. Everything must be interpreted in intensity. The egg and the placenta itself, swept by an unconscious life energy susceptible to augmentation and diminution. The father is in no way absent. But Emma, the father, and genitor, is himself a high-intensive part, imminent to the placenta, inseparable from the twinness, which relates him to his feminine part. And if the Yurugu son carries away a part of the placenta in his turn, it is in an intensive relationship with another part that contains his own sister or twin sister. But, aiming too high, the part he carries away makes him the sister of his mother, who eminently replaces the sister, and to whom he becomes united by replacing Amma. In short, a whole world of ambiguous signs included divisions and bisexual states. I am the son, and also my mother's brother and my sister's husband and my own father. Everything rests on the placenta, which has become the earth, the unengendered, the full body of anti-production where the organs partial objects of a sacrificed namo are attached. It is because the placenta, as a substance common to the mother and the child, A common part of their bodies, makes it such that these bodies are not like cause and effect, but are both products derived from this same substance, in relation to which the son is his mother's twin, such is indeed the axis of the Dogon myth related by Griel. Yes, I have been my mother and I have been my son. It is rare that one sees myth and science saying the same thing from such a great distance, the Dogon narrative develops a mythical Weissmanism where the germinative plasma forms an immortal and continuous lineage that does not depend on bodies, on the contrary, the bodies of the parents as well as the children depend on it. Whence the distinction between two lines, the one continuous and germinal, but the other discontinuous and somatic, it alone being subjected to a succession of generations. T. D. Lysenko employed a naturally Dogon tone, turning it back against Weissmann, to reproach him for making the son the genetic or germinal brother of the mother, the Morganists Mendelians, following Weissman, start from the idea that the parents are not genetically the parents of their children, if we are to believe their doctrine, parents and children are brothers and sisters. 15. But the son is not somatically his mother's brother and twin. That is why he cannot marry her, bearing in mind what we said earlier to be the meaning of that is why. The one who should have married the mother was therefore the maternal uncle. The first consequence of this is that incest with the sister is not a substitute for incest with the mother, but on the contrary the intensive model of incest as a manifestation of the germinal lineage. Then again, Hamlet is not an extension of Oedipus, an Oedipus to the second degree, on the contrary, a negative or inverse Hamlet is primary in relation to Oedipus. The subject does not reproach the uncle for having done what he himself wanted to do, he reproaches him for not having done what he the son could not do. And why didn't the uncle marry the mother, his somatic sister? Because he must not, except in the name of this germinal filiation, marked by ambiguous signs of twinness and bisexuality, according to which the son could have done it as well, and could have been himself this uncle in an intense relationship with the mother twin. The vicious circle of the germinal lineage closes, the primitive double bind neither can the uncle marry his sister, the mother, nor from that moment can the son marry his own sister the Yorugu female twin will be delivered over to the namos as a potential affine. The somatic order causes the whole intensive scale to collapse again. Actually, if the son cannot marry his mother, it is not because he is somatically from a different generation. Arguing against Malinowski, Levi Strauss has demonstrated convincingly that the mixing of generations was not in the least feared as such, and that the incest prohibition could not be explained in this manner. Point sixteen: This is because the mixing of the generations in the son-mother case has the same effect as their correspondence in the case of the uncle-sister, that is, it testifies to one and the same intensive germinal filiation that must be repressed in both cases. In short, a somatic system in extension can constitute itself only insofar as the filiations become extended, correlatively to lateral alliances that become established. It is through the prohibition of incest with the sister that the lateral alliance is sealed, it is through the prohibition of incest with the mother that the filiation becomes extended. There we find no repression of the father, no foreclosure of the name of the father. The respective position of the mother or father as kin or affine, the patrilineal or matrilineal character of the filiation, and the patrilateral or matrilateral character of the marriage, are active elements of the repression, and not objects at which the repression is directed. It is not even the memory of filiation in general that is repressed by a memory of alliance. It is the great nocturnal memory of the intensive germinal filiation that is repressed for the sake of an extensive somatic memory, created from filiations that have become extended, Patrilineal or matrilineal, and from the alliances that they imply. The entire Dogon mythology is a patrilineal version of the opposition between the two genealogies and the two filiations, in intensity and in extension, the intense germinal order and the extensive regime of the somatic generations. The system in extension is born of the intensive conditions that make it possible, but it reacts on them, cancels them, represses them, and allows them no more than a mythical expression. The signs cease to be ambiguous at the same time as they are determined in relation to the extended filiations and the lateral alliances, the disjunctions become exclusive, restrictive, the either slash or else replaces the intense either, or, or. The names, the appellations no longer designate intensive states, but discernible persons. Discernibility settles on the sister and the mother as prohibited spouses. The reason is that persons, with the names that now designate them, do not exist prior to the prohibitions that constitute them as such. Mother and sister do not exist prior to their prohibition as spouses. Robert Jolin says it well, the mythical discourse has as its theme the passage from indifference to incest to its prohibition. Implicit or explicit, this theme underlies all the myths, it is therefore a formal property of this language. 17. We must conclude that, Strictly speaking, incest does not and cannot exist. We are always on this side of incest, in a series of intensities that is ignorant of discernible persons, or else beyond incest, in an extension that recognizes them, that constitutes them, but that does not constitute them without rendering them impossible as sexual partners. One can commit incest only after a series of substitutions that always moves us away from it, that is to say, with a person who is equivalent to the mother or the sister only by virtue of not being either, she who is discernible as a possible spouse. Such is the meaning of preferential marriage, the first incest that is permitted. But it is not by chance that this kind of marriage rarely occurs, as though it were still too close to the non-existent impossible, for example, the preferential Dogon marriage with the uncle's daughter, she being equivalent to the aunt, who is herself equivalent to the mother. Briel's article is without doubt the text most profoundly inspired by psychoanalysis in the whole of anthropology. Yet it leads to conclusions that cause the whole of Oedipus to shatter, because it is not content to pose the problem in extension, thereby assuming its solution. These are the conclusions drawn by Adler and Cartree, it is customary to consider incestuous relations in myth either as the expression of the desire or the nostalgia for a world where such relations would or be possible or would meet with indifference, or as the expression of a structural function of the inversion of the social rule, a function destined to found the prohibition and its transgression. In both instances, one takes as something already constituted what is in fact the emergence of an order that the myth narrates and explains. In other words one reasons as if the myth placed on the stage persons defined as father, mother, brother, and sister, whereas these roles belong to the order constituted by the prohibition. Incest does not exist. Incest is a pure limit. Provided that two false beliefs concerning the limit are avoided, one that makes the limit a matrix or an origin, as though the prohibition proved that the thing was first desired as such, another that makes the limit a structural function, as though the supposedly fundamental relationship between desire and law were manifested in transgression. It is necessary to recall once more that the law proves nothing about an original reality of desire because it essentially disfigures the desired, and that the transgression proves nothing about a functional reality of the law because, far from being a mockery of the law, it is itself derisory in relation to what the law prohibits in reality, the reason why revolutions have nothing to do with transgressions. In short, the limit is neither a this side of nor a beyond, it is the boundary line between the two incest, that slandered shallow stream always crossed already or not yet crossed. For incest is like this motion, it is impossible. And it is not impossible in the same sense that the real would be impossible, but quite the contrary, in the sense that the symbolic is. But what does it mean to say that incest is impossible? Isn't it possible to go to bed with one sister or mother? And how do we dispense with the old argument, it must be possible since it is prohibited? The problem lies elsewhere. The possibility of incest would require both persons and names son, sister, mother, brother, father. Now in the incestuous act we can have persons at our disposal, but they lose their names inasmuch as these names are inseparable from the prohibition that proscribes them as partners, or else the names subsist, and designate nothing more than prepersonal intensive states that could just as well extend to other persons, as when one calls his legitimate wife mama, or one sister his wife. It is in this sense that we said we are always on this side of it or beyond. Our mothers and our sisters melt in our arms, their names slide on their persons like a stamp that is too wet. This is because one can never enjoy the person and the name at the same time yet this would be the condition for incest. Granted, incest is a lure, it is impossible. But the problem is only deferred. Is that not the nature of desire, that one desires the impossible? At least in this instance, the platitude is not even true we are reminded how illegitimate it is to conclude from the prohibition anything regarding the nature of what is prohibited, for the prohibition proceeds by dishonoring the guilty, that is to say, by inducing a disfigured or displaced image of the thing that is really prohibited or desired. Indeed, this is how social repression prolongs itself by means of a psychic repression without which it would have no grip on desire. What is desired is the intense germinal or germinative flow, where one would look in vain for persons or even functions discernible as father, mother, son, sister, etc., since these names only designate intensive variations on the full body of the earth determined as the German. It is always possible to use the term incest, as well as indifference to incest, for this regime composed of one and the same being or flow, varying in intensity according to inclusive disjunctions. But that is precisely the problem, One cannot confound incest as it would be in this intensive non-personal regime that would institute it, with incest as represented in extension in the state that prohibits it, and that defines it as a transgression against persons. Jung is therefore entirely correct in saying that the Oedipus complex signifies something altogether different from itself, and that in the Oedipal relation the mother is also the earth, and incest is an infinite renaissance. He is wrong only in thinking that he has thus transcended sexuality. The somatic complex refers to a germinal Implex. Incest refers to a this side of that cannot be represented as such in the complex, since the complex is an element derived from this this side of. Incest as it is prohibited, the form of discernible persons, is employed to repress incest as it is desired, the substance of the intense earth. The intensive germinal flow is the representative of desire, it is against this flow that the repression is directed. The extensive edible figure is its displaced represented, L.E. represents place, the lure, or fake image, born of repression, that comes to conceal desire. It matters little that this image is impossible, it does its work from the moment that desire lets itself be caught as though by the impossible itself. You see, that is what you wanted. However it is this conclusion, going directly from the repression to the repressed, and from the prohibition to the prohibited, that already implies the whole paralogism of social repression. But why is the germinal implex or influx repressed, since it is nevertheless the territorial representative of desire? Because the thing it refers to, in its capacity as representative, is a flow that would not be codable, that would not let itself be coded specifically, The terror of the primitive socius. No chain could be detached, nothing could be selected, nothing would pass from filiation to descent, but descent would be perpetually reduced to filiation in the act of re-engendering oneself, the signifying chain would not form any code, it would only emit ambiguous signs and be perpetually eroded by its own energetic support, what would flow on the full body of the earth would be as unfettered as the non-coded flows that shift and slide on the desert of a body without organs for it is less a question of abundance or scarcity, of a spring or the exhaustion of a spring, even the drying up of a spring is a flow, than of what is codable or non-codable. The germinal flow is such that it amounts to the same to say that everything would pass or flow with it, or on the contrary, that everything would be blocked. For the flows to be codable, their energy must allow itself to be quantified and qualified, it is necessary that selections from the flows be made in relation to detachments from the chain, something must pass through but something must also be blocked, and something must block and cause to pass through. Now this is possible only in the system in extension that renders persons discernible, that makes a determinate use of signs, an exclusive use of the disjunctive synth essays, and a conjugal use of the connective synth essays. Such is indeed the meaning of the incest prohibition conceived as the establishment of a physical system in extension. One must look in each case for the part of the flow of intensity that passes through, for what does not pass, and for what causes passage or prevents it, according to the patrilateral or matrilateral nature of the marriages, according to the patrilineal or matrilineal nature of the lineages, according to the general regime of the extended filiations and the lateral alliances. Let us return to the Dogon preferential marriage as analyzed by Griel. what is blocked is the relationship with the aunt as a substitute for the mother, in the form of a make-believe parent, what passes through is the relationship with the aunt's daughter as a substitute for the aunt, as the first possible or permitted incest, what does the blocking or causes passage is the maternal uncle. What passes through leads to as compensation for what is blocked a veritable surplus value of code, which falls to the uncle insofar as he causes passage, while he suffers a kind of minus-value insofar as he does the blocking, thus the ritual thefts perpetrated by the nephews in the uncle's house, but also, as Greel says, the augmentation and fructification of the uncle's possessions when the oldest of the nephews comes to live with him. The fundamental problem who has the right to the matrimonial prestations in a given system cannot be resolved independently of the lines of passage and the lines of blockage, as if what was blocked or prohibited reappeared in marriages in spectral form, 18 coming to demand its due. Loftier rights of a specific case, among them RU, the patrilineal model predominates over the matrilineal tradition, the brother-sister relationship, which is transmitted from father to son and from mother to daughter, can be transmitted indefinitely through the father-son relationship, but not through the mother-daughter relationship, which terminates with the daughter's marriage. A married daughter transmits to her own daughter a new relationship, namely that which joins her to her own brother. At the same time, a daughter who marries becomes detached not from her brother's line, but solely from that of her mother's brother. The significance of the payments to the mother's brother upon the marriage of his niece can be understood only in the following way, the girl leaves the previous family group, to which her mother belongs. The niece becomes herself a mother and the point of departure for a new brother-sister relationship, on which a new alliance is founded. 19. What is prolonged, what comes to a halt, what is detached, and the different relationships according to which these actions and passions are distributed, help us to understand the formation mechanism of the surplus value of code as an indispensable element of any coding of flows. We are now able to outline the various instances of territorial representation in the primitive socius. In the first place, the germinal influx of intensity conditions all representation, it is the representative of desire. But if it is termed representative, this is because it is equivalent to the non-codable, non-coded, or decoded flows. In this sense it implies, in its own way, the socius's limit, the limit, or the negative of every socius, The repression of this limit is possible only to the extent that the representative itself undergoes a repression. This repression determines what part of the influx will pass through and what will not in the system in extension, what will remain blocked or stocked in the extended filiations, and on the contrary, what will move and flow following the relations of alliance, in such a way that the systematic coding of the flows will be carried out. We call this second instance the repressing representation itself alliance, since the filiations become extended only in terms of lateral alliances that measure their variable segments. Whence the importance of these local lines that Leach has identified and which, two by two, organize the alliances and arrange, machine, the marriages. When we ascribed to them a perverse normal activity, we meant that these local groups were the agents of repression, the great coders. Wherever men meet and assemble to take wives for themselves, to negotiate for them, to share them, etc., one recognizes the perverse tie of a primary homosexuality between local groups, between brothers-in-law, co-husbands, childhood partners. Underlining the universal fact that marriage is not an alliance between a man and a woman, but an alliance between two families, a transaction between men concerning women, Georges Devereux drew the correct conclusion of a basic homosexual motivation of a group character. Point 20 Through women, men establish their own connections, through the man-woman disjunction, which is always the outcome of filiation, alliance places in connection men from different filiations. The question why a female homosexuality hasn't given rise to Amazon groups capable of negotiating for men perhaps finds its reply in women's affinity with the germinal influx resulting in the enclosed position of women in the midst of extended filiations, filiation hysteria as opposed to alliance paranoia. Male homosexuality is therefore the representation of alliance that represses the ambiguous signs of intense bisexual filiation. However, Devereux seems to us to be wrong on two occasions. First, when he admits having recoiled too long before this so serious, he says, discovery of a homosexual representation, there we merely see a primitive version of the formula all men are homosexuals, and to be sure, they are never more so than when they arrange marriages. Then again and this is his most serious error when he wants to make of this homosexuality of alliance a product of the Oedipus complex as something repressed. Alliance can never be deduced from the lines of filiation through the intermediary of Oedipus, on the contrary, alliance articulates them, Impelled by the action of the local lines and their non-edible primary homosexuality. And if it is true that there exists an edible or filiative homosexuality, this should be understood merely as a secondary reaction to this group homosexuality, non-edible at first. As for Oedipus in general, it is not the repressed that is, the representative of desire, which is on this side of and completely ignorant of daddy-mommy. Nor is it the repressing representation which is beyond, and which renders the persons discernible only by subjecting them to the homosexual rules of alliance. Incest is only the retroactive effect of the repressing representation on the repressed representative, the representation disfigures or displaces this representative against which it is directed, it projects onto the representative, categories, rendered discernible, that it has itself established, it applies to the representative terms that did not exist before the alliance organized the positive and the negative into a system in extension the representation reduces the representative to what is blocked in this system. Hence Oedipus is indeed the limit, but the displaced limit that now passes into the interior of the socius. Oedipus is the baited image with which desire allows itself to be caught, that's what you wanted. The decoded flows were incest. Then a long story begins, the story of Oedipalization. But to be exact, everything begins in the mind of Leuz, the old group homosexual, the pervert, who sets a trap for desire. For desire is that, too, a trap. Territorial representation comprises these three instances, the repressed representative, the repressing representation, and the displaced represented for psychoanalysis and ethnology we are moving too fast acting as if oedipus were already installed within the savage territorial machine however as nietzsche says with regard to bad conscience such a plant does not grow on that kind of terrain this is explained by the fact that the necessary conditions for oedipus as a familial complex existing in the framework of the familialism suited to psychiatry and psychoanalysis are obviously not present Primitive families constitute a praxis, a politics, a strategy of alliances and filiations, formally, they are the driving elements of social reproduction, they have nothing to do with an expressive microcosm, in these families the father, the mother and the sister always also function as something other than father, mother, or sister. And in addition to the father, the mother, etc., there is the affine, who constitutes the active, concrete reality and makes the relations between families coextensive with the social field. It would not even be exact to say that the family determinations burst apart at every corner of this field and remain attached to strictly social determinations, since both kinds of determinations form one and the same component in the territorial machine. Since familial reproduction is not yet a simple means, or a material at the service of a social reproduction of another nature, there is no possibility of reducing social reproduction to familial reproduction, nor is it possible to establish one-to-one relations between the two that would confer on any familial complex whatever an expressive value and an apparent autonomous form. On the contrary, it is evident that the individual in the family, however young, directly invests a social, historical, economic, and political field that is not reducible to any mental structure or effective constellation. That is why, when one considers pathological cases and processes of cure in primitive societies, it seems to us entirely insufficient to compare them with psychoanalytic procedure by relating them to criteria borrowed from the latter, for example, a familial complex, even if it differs from our own, or cultural material, de culturals, cultuals, even if it is brought into relation with an ethnic unconscious as seen in attempted parallelisms between the psychoanalytic cure and the shamanistic. Cure, Devaru, Levi Strauss Our definition of schizoanalysis focused on two aspects, the destruction of the expressive pseudo-forms of the unconscious, and the discovery of desires unconscious investments of the social field. It is from this point of view that we must consider many primitive cures, they are schizoanalysis in action. Victor Turner gives a remarkable example of such a cure among the endome. 21. The example is the more striking to our perverted eyes for the fact that, at first glance, everything appears edible. Effeminate, insufferable, vain, failing at everything he tries, the sick K is preyed upon by the ghost of his maternal grandfather, who cruelly reproaches him. Although the Endambu are matrilineal and must live with their maternal kin, K has stayed an exceptionally long time in the matrilineage of his father, whose favorite he was, and has entered into marriage with paternal cousins. But with the death of his father he is driven away, and returns to the maternal village. There his house expresses his situation well, being wedged between two sectors, the houses of the members of the paternal group and those belonging to his own matrilineage. How does the divination, responsible for indicating the cause of the illness, proceed, and the medical cure responsible for treating it? The teeth are the cause, the two top incisors of the ancestor hunter, contained in a sacred pouch, but which can escape from the pouch and penetrate the body of the sick man. In order to diagnose and ward off the effects of the incisor, the soothsayer and the medicine man launch into a social analysis concerning the territory and its environs, the chieftainship and its sub-chieftainships, the lineages and their segments, the alliances and the filiations, they constantly bring to light desire in its relations with political and economic units the very point on which, moreover, the witnesses try to mislead them. Divination becomes a form of social analysis in the course of which hidden struggles between individuals and factions are brought to light, in such a way that they can be treated by traditional ritual methods. The vague nature of mystical beliefs allowing them to be manipulated in relation to a great number of social situations. It seems that the pathological incisor is indeed mainly that of the maternal grandfather. But the latter was a great chief, his successor, the real chief, had had to relinquish the throne for fear of being bewitched, and his would be heir, intelligent and ambitious, does not exercise the power, the actual chief is not the real chief, as for the sick K he has not been able to assume the role of mediator that could have made him a candidate for chief. Everything becomes complicated because of the colonizer colonized relations, the English have not recognized the chieftainship, the impoverished village is falling into decrepitude, the two sectors of the village result from a fusion of two groups that have fled the English, the elders bemoan the current decadence. The medicine man does not organize a socio-drama but a veritable group analysis centering on the sick individual. Giving him potions, attaching horns to his body for drawing up the incisor, making the drums beat, the medicine man proceeds with a ceremony interrupted by halts and fresh departures, flows of all sorts, flows of words and breaks. The members of the village come to talk, the sick subject talks, the ghost is invoked, the medicine man explains, everything recommences, drums, chants, trances. It is not only a question of discovering the preconscious investments of a social field by interests, but more profoundly its unconscious investments by desire, such as they pass by way of the sick person's marriages, his position in the village, and all the positions of a chief lived in intensity within the group. We said that the point of departure seemed edible. It was only the point of departure for us, Conditioned to say Oedipus every time someone speaks to us of father, mother, grandfather. In fact, the endomview analysis was never edible. It was directly plugged into social organization and disorganization, sexuality itself, through the women and the marriages, was just such an investment of desire. The parents played the role of stimuli in it, and not the role of group organizers or disorganizers, the role held by the chief and his personages. Rather than everything being reduced to the name of the father, or that of the maternal grandfather, the latter opened onto all the names of history. Instead of everything being projected onto a grotesque hiatus of castration, everything was scattered in the thousand breaks flows of the chieftainships, the lineages, the relations of colonization. The whole interplay of races, clans, alliances, and filiations, this entire historical and collective drift exactly the opposite of the edible analysis, when it stubbornly crushes the content of a delirium, when it stuffs it with all its might into the symbolic void of the Father. Or rather, if it is true that the analysis doesn't even begin as edible, except to our way of seeing, doesn't it become edible nevertheless, in a certain way and in what way? Yes, it becomes edible in part, under the effect of colonization. The colonizer, for example, abolishes the chieftainship, or uses it to further his own ends, and he uses many other things besides, the chieftainship is only a beginning. The colonizer says, your father is your father and nothing else, or your maternal grandfather don't mistake them for chiefs, you can go have yourself triangulated in your corner, and place your house between those of your paternal and maternal kin, your family is your family and nothing else, sexual reproduction no longer passes through those points, although we rightly need your family to furnish a material that will be subjected to a new order of reproduction. Yes, then, an Oedipal framework is outlined for the dispossessed primitives, a shantytown Oedipus. We have seen, however, that the colonized remained a typical example of resistance to Oedipus, in fact, that's where the Oedipal structure does not manage to close itself. and where the terms of the structure remain stuck to the agents of oppressive social reproduction either in a struggle or in a complicity the white man the missionary the tax collector the exporter of goods the person withstanding in the village who becomes the agent of the administration the elders who curse the white man the young people who enter into a political struggle etc both are true the colonized resists edipolization and Oedipalization tends to close around him again. To the degree that there is edipalization, it is due to colonization, and it is necessary to add Oedipalization to all the methods that Jolin was able to describe in La Paix Blanche. The condition of the colonized can lead to a reduction in the humanization of the universe, so that any solution that is sought will be a solution on the scale of the individual and the restricted family, with, by way of consequence, an extreme anarchy or disorder at the level of the collective, an anarchy whose victim will always be the individual with the exception of those who occupy the key positions in such a system, namely the colonizers, who, during this same period when the colonized reduce the universe, will tend to extend it? Oedipus is something like euthanasia within ethnocide. The more social reproduction escapes the members of the group, in nature and in extension, the more it falls back on them, or reduces them to a restricted and neuroticized familial reproduction whose agent is Oedipus. After all, how are we to understand those who claim to have discovered an Indian Oedipus or an African Oedipus? They are the first to admit that they re-encounter none of the mechanisms or attitudes that constitute our own Oedipus, our own presumed Oedipus. No matter, they say that the structure is there, although it has no existence whatever that is accessible to clinical practice, or that the problem, the point of departure, is indeed edible, although the developments and the solutions are completely different from ours, Perrin, Ortig's. They say that there is no end to the existence of this Oedipus, when in fact it does not even have, apart from colonization, the necessary conditions to begin to exist. If it is true that thought can be evaluated in terms of the degree of oedipalization, then yes, whites think too much. The competence, the honesty, and the talent of these authors psychoanalysts specializing in Africa are beyond question. But the same applies to them as to certain psychotherapists here, it would seem that they don't know what they are doing. We have psychotherapists who sincerely believe they are engaged in progressive work when they apply new methods for triangulating the child, But watch out a structural Oedipus, and this time it isn't imaginary. The same is true of the psychoanalysts in Africa who apply the yoke of a structural or problematical Oedipus, in the service of their progressive intentions. There or here, it's the same thing, Oedipus is always colonization pursued by other means, it is the interior colony, and we shall see that even here at home, where we Europeans are concerned, it is our intimate colonial education. How are we to understand the phrases with which M.C. and Edmund Ortig's conclude their book? Illness is considered as a sign of an election, of a special attention coming from supernatural powers, or as a sign of an aggression of a magical nature, an idea that is difficult to express in profane terms. Analytic psychotherapy can intervene only starting from the moment a demand can be formulated by the subject our entire research was therefore conditioned by the possibility of establishing a psychoanalytic domain. When a subject adhered fully to the traditional norms and had nothing to say in his own name, he allowed himself to be taken into the care of the traditional therapists and the familial group, or into that of the medical practice of medicines. At times, The fact that he wanted to speak to us about traditional treatments corresponded to a beginning of psychotherapy and became for him a means of situating himself personally in his own society. At other times, the analytic dialogue was able to unfold to a greater extent, and in this case the Oedipal problem tended to assume its diachronic dimension, causing the generation gap to appear twenty-two. Why think that supernatural powers and magical aggressions constitute a myth that is inferior to Oedipus? On the contrary, is it not true that they move desire in the direction of more intense and more adequate investments of the social field, in its organization as well as its disorganizations? Meyer Fortes at least showed Job's place beside Oedipus. And what entitles one to determine that the subject has nothing to say in his own name so long as he adheres to the traditional norms? Doesn't the cure demonstrate just the opposite? Could it not be said that Oedipus is also a traditional norm our own, to be exact? How can one say that Oedipus makes us speak in our own name, when one also goes on to say that its resolution teaches us the incurable inadequacy of being and universal castration? And what is this demand that is invoked to justify Oedipus? It goes without saying, the subject demands and redemands, Daddy-Mommy, But which subject, and in what state? Is that the means to situate oneself personally in one's own society? And which society? The neo-colonized society that is constructed for the subject, and that finally succeeds in what colonization was only able to outline, an effective reduction of the forces of desire to Oedipus, to a father's name, in the grotesque triangle? Let us return to the well-known and inexhaustible debate between culturalists and orthodox psychoanalysts, is Oedipus universal? Is Oedipus the great paternal Catholic symbol, the meeting place of all the churches? The debate began between Malinowski and Jones, it continued between Cardiner and Frum on one side, and Raheim on the other it is still pursued between certain ethnologists and certain disciples of Lakin those who offered not only an Oedipalizing interpretation of Lacan’s doctrine, but also an ethnographic extension to this interpretation. On the side of the Universal there are two poles, one outdated, it would seem that makes of Oedipus an original effective constellation, and that constitutes an extreme position arguing that Oedipus was a real event whose effects were transmitted through phylogenetic heredity and the other pole, which makes Oedipus into a structure, a pole whose extreme position argues the possibility of discovering the structure in fantasy, in relation to biological prematuration and neoteny. Two very different conceptions of the limit, one as original matrix, the other as structural function. But in both these senses of the universal, we are invited to interpret, since the latent presence of Oedipus appears only through its patent absence, understood as an effect of psychic repression or, better still, since the structural constant is discovered only through its imaginary variations, attesting to the need for a symbolic foreclosure, the father as an empty position. Oedipus as Universal recommences the old metaphysical operation that consists in interpreting negation as a deprivation, as a lack, the symbolic lack of the dead father, or the great signifier. Interpretation is our modern way of believing and of being pious. Already Ghazarahem proposed organizing primitives into a series of variables converging toward the structural neotenic constant.23 It was he who said in all seriousness that the Oedipus complex was not to be found if it wasn't looked for. And that one wasn't looking if one hadn't had oneself analyzed And that is why your daughter is mute, which is to say, the tribes, daughters of the ethnologist, do not say Oedipus, although it is Oedipus who makes them speak." Raheim added that it was ridiculous to think that the Freudian theory of censorship depended on the repressive regime in the empire of Franz Joseph. He did not seem to see that Franz Joseph was not a pertinent historical break coupure, but that perhaps the oral, the written, or even the capitalist civilizations were such breaks with which the nature of social repression, repression and the meaning and scope of psychic repression, refoulement, would vary. This story of psychic repression is quite complicated. Things would be simpler if the libido or the affect were repressed, in the most general sense of the word, suppressed, inhibited, or transformed, at the same time as the supposed Oedipal representation. But such is not the case, Most ethnologists have clearly noted the sexual nature of affects in the public symbols of primitive societies, and this nature remains integrally lived by the members of these societies, even though they have not been psychoanalyzed, and in spite of the displacement of the representation. As Leach says apropos of the sex-slash-hair relationship, displaced phallic symbolism is very common but the phallic origin of the symbolism is not repressed. 24. Must it be said that primitives repress the representation and keep the affect intact? And would the contrary be true in our case, in the patriarchal organization where the representation would remain clear, but with the affects suppressed, inhibited, or transformed? No, in fact, psychoanalysis tells us that we too repress the representation and everything tells us that we too often keep the full sexuality of the affect, we know perfectly well what it is about, without having been psychoanalyzed. But what enables one to speak of an edible representation that would be the object of repression? Is it because incest is prohibited? We always fall back on this pale rationale, incest is desired because it is prohibited. The prohibition of incest would therefore imply an edible representation, and it would be born of the repression of this representation and of the latter's return. Now the opposite is clearly the case, not only does the edible representation presuppose the prohibition of incest, but it is not even possible to say that the representation is born of the prohibition or results from it. Adopting Malinowski's arguments, Reich added a profound remark, desire is all the more edible as the prohibitions are aimed, not simply at incest, but at all other types of sexual relations, blocking the other paths. 25 In a word, the repression of incest is not born of a repressed edible representation any more than it provokes this repression. But and this is something altogether different the general social repression psychic repression system gives rise to an edible image as a disfiguration of the repressed. The fact that this image in turn finally suffers a repression, that it comes to take the place of the repressed or of the thing that is effectively desired, insofar as sexual repression is directed at something other than incest such is the long history of our society. But the repressed is not first of all the edible representation. What is repressed is desiring production. It is the part of this production that does not enter into social production or reproduction. It is what would introduce disorder and revolution into the socius, the non-coded flows of desire. The part that passes, on the contrary, from desiring production to social production forms a direct sexual investment of this social production, without any repression of a sexual nature of the symbolism and the corresponding affects, and above all, without any reference to an edible representation that could be held to be originally repressed or structurally foreclosed. The animal in us is not merely the object of a preconscious investment determined by interest, but the object of a libidinal investment of desire that only secondarily derives an image of the father from desiring production. The same holds true for the libidinal investment of food, wherever a fear of going hungry is evident, or a pleasure at not being hungry, and this investment refers only secondarily to an image of the mother. We have already seen how the prohibition of incest referred, not to Oedipus, but to the non-coded flows that constitute desire, and to their representative, the intense prepersonal flow. As for Oedipus, it is another way of coding the uncodable, of codifying what eludes the codes, or of displacing desire and its object, a way of entrapping them. Culturalists and ethnologists have demonstrated that institutions are primary in relation to effects and structures. For structures are not mental, they are present in things, Elk Sunt Densley shows us, in the forms of social production and reproduction. Even an author like Marcuse, whom one would not suspect of complacence in this regard, acknowledges that culturalism started on the right track, introducing desire into production, strengthening the link between instinctual and economic structure, and at the same time indicating the possibility of progress beyond the patrocentric acquisitive culture. Twenty-six. Then what caused culturalism to go wrong? And here again there is no contradiction in the fact that it started on the right track, and that it went wrong from the start. Perhaps the answer lies in the postulate common to Oedipal relativism and Oedipal absolutism i.e., the stubborn maintenance of a familialist perspective, which wreaks havoc everywhere. For if the institution is first understood as a familial institution, it matters little to say that the familial complex varies with the institutions, or that Oedipus is to the contrary a nuclear constant around which families and institutions turn. The culturalists invoke other triangles maternal uncle and nephew, for example, but the Oedipalists have no difficulty in demonstrating that these are imaginary variations of one and the same structural constant, different figures of one and the same symbolic triangulation, Which are not identical either with the personages who come to realize the triangulation, or with the attitudes that come to place these personages in relation to each other. But inversely, the invocation of such a transcendent symbolism does not rescue the structuralists from the narrowest familial point of view. The same holds for the endless debates on is it daddy? Is it mommy? You are neglecting the mother? No, you're the one who fails to see the father off to the side as the empty position. The conflict between culturalists and orthodox psychoanalysts has often been reduced to these evaluations of the respective roles of the mother and the father, or of the pre edipal and the Oedipal, without allowing either side to leave the family or even Oedipus, always oscillating between the famous two poles, the pre edipal maternal pole of the imaginary, and the Oedipal-paternal pole of the structural, both on the same axis, both speaking the same language of a familialized social realm. Where one pole designates the customary maternal dialects, while the other designates the imperative law of the language of the father. The ambiguity of what Cardiner called the primary institution has been clearly shown. In certain cases, it can be a question of the way desire invests the social field from childhood, and under the familial stimuli coming from the adult, all the conditions would then be given for an adequate, Extrafamilial understanding of the libido. But more often it is solely a question of the familial organization in itself, which is thought to be lived first by the child as a microcosm, then projected into the adult and social development devenir. From this point of view, the discussion can only go round in circles between the holders of a cultural interpretation and the holders of a symbolic or structural interpretation of this same organization. A second postulate common to the culturalists and the symbolists should be added. They all agree that, in our patriarchal and capitalist society at least, Oedipus is a sure thing, even if they underline, as does Fromm, the elements of a new matriarchy. They all agree that our society is the stronghold of Oedipus, the starting point for re-encountering an Oedipal structure everywhere, or on the contrary, they hold that the terms and the relations should be made to vary within non edible complexes that are no less familial on that account. That is why our preceding criticism was directed at Oedipus as it is meant to command our respect and to function for us, it is not at the weakest point the primitives that Oedipus must be attacked, but at the strongest point, at the level of the strongest link, by revealing the degree of disfiguration it implies and brings to bear on desiring production, on the synth essays of the unconscious, and on libidinal investments in our cultural and social milieu. Not that Oedipus counts for nothing in our society, we have said repeatedly that Oedipus is demanded, and demanded again and again, and even an attempt as profound as Lacan's at shaking loose from the yoke of Oedipus has been interpreted as an unhoped-for means of making it heavier still and of ressecuring it on the baby and the schizo. To be sure, it is not only legitimate but indispensable that the ethnological or historical explanation not be in contradiction with our social organization, or that this organization contain in its own way the basic elements of the ethnological hypothesis. This is what Marx was saying as he recalled the requirements of a universal history but, as he went on to say, provided that the current organization be capable of conducting its own criticism. And yet Oedipus's auto-critique is something rarely seen in our organization, of which psychoanalysis forms a part. In certain respects it is correct to question all social formations starting from Oedipus. But not because Oedipus might be a truth of the unconscious that is especially visible where we are concerned, on the contrary, because it is a mystification of the unconscious that has only succeeded with us by assembling the parts and wheels of its apparatus from elements of the previous social formations it is universal in that sense. Thus it is indeed within capitalist society that the critique of Oedipus must always resume its point of departure and find again its point of arrival. Oedipus is a limit. But limit has many different meanings, since it can be at the beginning as an inaugural event, in the role of a matrix, or in the middle as a structural function ensuring the mediation of personages and the ground of their relations, or at the end as an eschatological determination. Now we have seen that it is only in this last sense that Oedipus is a limit. This is also the case for desiring production. But in fact this last sense itself can be understood in many different ways. In the first place, desiring production is situated at the limits of social production, the decoded flows, at the limits of the codes and the territorialities, the body without organs, at the limits of the socius. We shall speak of an absolute limit every time the schizo flows pass through the wall, scramble all the codes, and deterritorialize the socius. The body without organs is the deterritorialized socius. The wilderness where the decoded flows run free. The end of the world. The apocalypse. Secondly, however, the relative limit is no more nor less than the capitalist social formation, because the latter engineers machine and mobilizes flows that are effectively decoded, but does so by substituting for the codes a quantifying axiomatic, an axiomatic comptable, that is even more oppressive. With the result that capitalism in conformity with the movement by which it counteracts its own tendency is continually drawing near the wall, while at the same time pushing the wall further away. Schizophrenia is the absolute limit, but capitalism is the relative limit. Thirdly, there is no social formation that does not foresee, or experience a foreboding of, the real form in which the limit threatens to arrive, and which it wards off with all the strength it can command. Whence the obstinacy with which the formations preceding capitalism encast the merchant and the technician, preventing flows of money and flows of production from assuming an autonomy that would destroy their codes. Such is the real limit. When such societies are confronted with this real limit, repressed from within, but which returns to them from without, they regard this event with melancholy as the sign of their approaching death. For example, the Bohannans describe the tiv economy, which codes three kinds of flows, consumer goods, prestige goods, and women and children. When money supervenes, it can only be coded as an object of prestige, yet merchants use it to lay hold of sectors of consumer goods traditionally held by the women, all the codes vacillate. Doubtless, to begin with money and to finish with money is an operation that cannot be expressed in terms of a code, seeing the trucks that leave loaded with export goods, the TIV elders deplore this situation, and know what is happening, but do not know where to place their blame 27 a harsh reality. But, fourthly, this limit inhibited from the interior was already projected onto a primordial beginning a mythical matrix as the imaginary limit. How can this nightmare be imagined, the invasion of the socius by non-coded flows that move like lava? An irrepressible wave of shit, as in the 4b myth, or the intense germinal influx, the this side of incest, as in the Yorugu myth, which introduces disorder into the world by acting as the representative of desire. Whence, in the fifth and last instance, the importance of the task of displacing the limit, causing it to pass into the interior of the socius, in the middle, between a beyond of alliance and of this side of, between a representation of alliance and the representative of filiation, as one attempts to tame the dreaded forces of a river by digging an artificial river bed, or by diverting it into a thousand shallow little streams. Oedipus is this displaced limit. Yes, Oedipus is universal. But the error lies in having believed in the following alternative. Either Oedipus is the product of the social repression, psychic repression system, in which case it is not universal, or it is universal, and a position of desire. In reality, it is universal because it is the displacement of the limit that haunts all societies, the displaced represented, LE represents de place, that disfigures what all societies dread absolutely as their most profound negative, namely, the decoded flows of desire. This is not to say that the universal Oedipal limit is occupied, strategically occupied in all social formations. We must take Cardiner's remark seriously, a Hindu or an Eskimo can dream of Oedipus, without however being subjected to the complex, without having the complex 28. For Oedipus to be occupied, a certain number of conditions are indispensable, the field of social production and reproduction must become independent of familial reproduction, that is, independent of the territorial machine that declines alliances and filiations, the detachable fragments of the chain must be converted, by virtue of this independence, into a transcendent detached object that crushes their polyvocal character, the detached object, phallus, must perform a kind of folding operation, a kind of application or reduction, rebatment or reduction of the social field, defined as the aggregate of departure, to the familial field, now defined as the aggregate of destination and it must establish a network of one-to-one relations between the two. For Oedipus to be occupied, it is not enough that it be a limit or a displaced represented in the system of representation, it must migrate to the heart of the system and itself come to occupy the position of the representative of desire. These conditions, inseparable from the paralogisms of the unconscious, are realized in the capitalist formation, furthermore, they imply certain archaism borrowed from the imperial barbarian formations in particular, the position of the transcendent object. The capitalist style has been described by D. H. Lawrence, our democratic, industrial order of things whose style is my dear little lamb I want to see mommy. Now on the one hand, it is evident that the primitive formations do not come close to fulfilling these conditions. Precisely because the family, when open to alliances, is coextensive with and adequate to the social historical field, because it animates social reproduction itself, because it mobilizes or causes passage of the detachable fragments without ever converting them into a detached object. No reduction whatever, no application is possible that would answer to the formula 3 plus 1, the four corners of the field folded into 3, like a tablecloth, plus the transcendent term that performs the folding. Operation speaking, dancing, exchanging, and allowing to flow, and even urinating, in the midst of the community of men, as Perrin himself puts it, to express the fluidity of the flows and the primitive codes. At the heart of primitive production one always finds oneself at 4 plus n, in the system of ancestors and affines. Far from being able to claim that here there is no end to Oedipus, one sees that it never manages to begin, one is always brought to a halt well before 3 plus 1, and if there is a primitive Oedipus, it is a NEG Oedipus, in the sense of a NEG Entropy. Oedipus is indeed a limit or a displaced represented, but precisely in such a way that each member of the group is always on this side of or beyond, without ever occupying the position, Cardiner has understood this very well in the formula we cited. It is colonization that causes Oedipus to exist but an Oedipus that is taken for what it is, a pure oppression, inasmuch as it assumes that these savages are deprived of the control over their own social production, that they are ripe for being reduced to the only thing they have left, the familial reproduction imposed on them being no less Oedipalized by force than it is alcoholic or sickly. On the other hand, when the requisite conditions are realized in capitalist society, it should not be thought on that account that Oedipus ceases to be what it is, the simple displaced represented that comes to usurp the place of the representative of desire, snaring the unconscious in the trap of its paralogisms, crushing the whole of desiring production, replacing it with a system of beliefs. Oedipus is never a cause, it depends on a previous social investment of a certain type, capable of falling back on se family determinations. It will be objected that such a principle is perhaps valid for the adult, but surely not for the child. But in effect, Oedipus begins in the mind of the father. And the beginning is not absolute, it is only constituted starting from investments of the social historical field that are affected by the father. And if it passes over to the son, this is not by virtue of a familial heredity, but by virtue of a much more complex relationship that depends on the communication of the unconsciouses. With the result that, even in the child, what is invested through the familial stimuli is still the social field, and a whole system of breaks and extrafamilial flows. The fact that the father is first in relation to the child can only be understood analytically in terms of another primacy, that of social investments and counter-investments in relation to familial investments, this will be seen later, at the level of an analysis of deliriums. But already, if it appears that Oedipus is in effect, This is because it forms an aggregate of destination, the family become microcosm, on which capitalist production and reproduction fall back. The organs and the agents of the latter no longer pass through a coding of flows of alliance and filiation, but through an axiomatic of decoded flows. Consequently, the capitalist formation of sovereignty will need an intimate colonial formation that corresponds to it, to which it will be applied, and without which it would have no hold on the productions of the unconscious. Given these conditions, what is there to say about the relationship between ethnology and psychoanalysis? Must we be content with an uncertain parallelism where each contemplates the other with perplexity, placing in opposition two irreducible sectors of symbolism? A social sector of symbols, and a sexual sector that would constitute a kind of private universal, a kind of individual universal? transversals between the two, since social symbolism can become a sexual material, and sexuality, a ritual of social aggregation. But the problem is too theoretical when posed this way. Practically speaking, the psychoanalyst often claims to explain to the ethnologist the meaning of the symbol, it means phallus, castration, Oedipus. But the ethnologist asks other questions, and sincerely asks himself of what use can psychoanalytic interpretations be to me? Hence the duality is displaced, it is no longer between two sectors, but between two kinds of questions, what does it mean? And what purpose does it serve? Of what use is it not only to the ethnologist, but what purpose does it serve and how does it work in the very formation that makes use of the symbol? Whatever may be the meaning of a thing, It is not certain that the thing serves any useful purpose whatever. It is possible, for example, that Oedipus serves no useful purpose, either for psychoanalysts or for the unconscious. And to what use could the phallus be put, since it is inseparable from the castration that deprives us of its use? Of course we are told not to confuse the signified with the signifier. But does the signifier take us beyond the question, what does it mean? Is it anything other than this same question, only this time barred? This is still the domain of representation. The true misunderstandings, the misunderstandings between ethnologists, or Hellenists, and psychoanalysts, do not come from a faulty knowledge or recognition of the unconscious, of sexuality, of the phallic nature of symbolism. In theory, everyone could reach an agreement on this point, everything is sexual or sex-influenced, Sex you, from one end to the other. Everyone knows this, beginning with the users. The practical misunderstandings come rather from the profound difference between the two sorts of questions. Without always formulating it clearly, the ethnologists and the Hellenists think that a symbol is not denned by what it means, but by what it does and by what is done with it. It always means the phallus or something similar, except that what it means does not tell what purpose it serves. In a word, there is no ethnological interpretation for the simple reason that there is no ethnographic material, there are only uses and functionings, defunctionements. On this point, it could be that psychoanalysts have much to learn from ethnologists, about the unimportance of what does it mean. When Hellenists place themselves in opposition to the Freudian Oedipus, it should not be thought that they put forward other interpretations to replace the psychoanalytic interpretation. It could be that ethnologists and Hellenists will compel psychoanalysts for their part to make a similar discovery, namely, that there is no unconscious material either, nor is there a psychoanalytic interpretation, but only uses, analytic uses of the synth essays of the unconscious, which do not allow themselves to be defined by an assignment of a signifier any more than by the determination of signifieds. How it works is the sole question. Schizoanalysis forgoes all interpretation because it foregoes discovering an unconscious material, the unconscious does not mean anything. On the other hand the unconscious constructs machines, which are machines of desire, whose use and functioning schizoanalysis discovers in their imminent relationship with social machines. The unconscious does not speak, it engineers. It is not expressive or representative, but productive. A symbol is nothing other than a social machine that functions as a desiring machine, a desiring machine that functions within the social machine, an investment of the social machine by desire. It has often been said and demonstrated that an institution cannot be explained by its use, any more than an organ can. Biological formations and social formations are not formed in the same way in which they function. Nor is there a biological, sociological, linguistic, etc, functionalism at the level of large determinate aggregates, de grand's ensembles specifies. But the same does not hold true in the case of desiring machines as molecular elements, their, use, functioning, production, and formation are one and the same process. And it is the synthesis of desire that, under certain determinate conditions, explains the molar aggregates, lay ensembles molaires, with their specific use in a biological, social, or linguistic field. This is because the large molar machines presuppose pre-established connections that are not explained by their functioning, since the latter results from them. Only desiring machines produce connections according to which they function, and function by improvising and forming the connections. A molar functionalism is therefore a functionalism that did not go far enough, that did not reach those regions where desire engineers, independently of the macroscopic nature of what it is engineering, organic, social, linguistic, etc., elements, all tossed into the same pot to stew. The only unities multiplicities that functionalism must know are the desiring machines themselves and the configurations they form in all the sectors of a field of production, the total fact. A magical chain brings together plant life, pieces of organs, a shred of clothing, an image of daddy, formulas, and words, we shall not ask what it means, but what kind of machine is assembled in this manner what kind of flows and breaks in the flows, in relation to other breaks and other flows. Analyzing the symbolism of the forked branch among the endem view, Victor Turner shows that the names given to them form a part of a chain that mobilizes the species and the properties of the trees from which the branches are taken, as well as the names of these species in turn, and the technical procedures with which they are treated. Selections are made from signifying chains no less than from material flows. The exegetical meaning, what is said about the thing, is only one element among others, and is less important than the operative use, what is done with the thing, or the positional functioning, the relationship with other things in one and the same complex, according to which the symbol is never in a one-to-one relationship with what it means, but always has a multiplicity of referents, being always multivocal and polysemous. 29. Analyzing the magical object booty among the kukuya of the Congo, Pierre Bonaf shows how it is inseparable from the practical synth essays that produce, record and consume it, the partial and nonspecific connection that combines fragments from the body of the subject with those of an animal, the inclusive disjunction that inscribes the object in the body of the subject, and transforms the latter into a man-animal, the residual conjunction that causes the residue to submit to a long voyage, before burying or immersing it. If present-day ethnologists are again evincing a lively interest in the hypothetical concept of the fetish, this is unquestionably due to the influence of psychoanalysis but it would seem that psychoanalysis offers them just as many reasons for doubting the notion as it offers for attracting their interest. For psychoanalysis has never said phallocetipus' castration more often than apropos of the fetish. While for his part, the ethnologist senses that there is a problem of political power and economic and religious force inseparable from the fetish, even when its use is individual and private. Hair, for example the rituals of hair cutting and coiffure, Is there any interest in referring these rituals to the phallus entity as signifying the separate thing, and in everywhere re-encountering the father as the symbolic representative of the separation? Wouldn't this be tantamount to remaining at the level of what it means? The ethnologist finds himself before a flow of hair, with the breaks in such a flow, and with what passes from one state into another through the break. As Leach says, hair as a partial object or as a separable part of the body does not represent an aggressive and separate phallus, hair is a thing in its own right, a material part in an aggressing apparatus, in a separating machine. Once again, it is not a question of knowing if the essence of a ritual is sexual, or if it is necessary to take into account political, economic and religious dimensions that would go beyond sexuality. So long as the problem is put in this manner, So long as a choice is imposed between Libido and Newman, the misunderstanding between ethnologists and psychoanalysts can only be aggravated just as it continues to grow between Hellenists and psychoanalysts apropos of Oedipus. Oedipus, the club footed despot, who clearly invokes an entire political history that brings into conflict the despotic machine and the old primitive territorial machine whence derive both the negation and the persistence of autochthony, brought into clear relief by Levi Strauss. But this is not enough to desexualize the drama. On the contrary. In reality, it is a question of knowing how one conceives of sexuality and libidinal investment. Must they be referred to an event or to something that is felt, which remains familial and intimate in spite of everything, an intimate edible feeling, even when it is interpreted structurally, on behalf of the pure signifier? Or rather is it necessary to open sexuality and libidinal investment onto the determinations of a socio-historical field, where the economic, the political, and the religious are things that are invested by the libido for themselves, and not the derivatives of a daddy-mommy? In the first instance one studies large molar aggregates, large social machines the economic, the political, etc., and this entails searching for what they mean by applying them to an abstract familial whole that is thought to contain the secret of the libido. In this way, one remains in the framework of representation. In the second instance one goes beyond these large aggregates, including the family, toward the molecular elements that form the parts and wheels of desiring machines. One searches for the way in which these machines function, for how they invest and underdetermine, subdeterminant, the social machines that they constitute on a large scale. One then reaches the regions of a productive, molecular, micrological, or microphysical unconscious that no longer means or represents anything. Sexuality is no longer regarded as a specific energy that unites persons derived from the large aggregates, but as the molecular energy that places molecules, partial objects, libido, in connection that organizes inclusive disjunctions on the giant molecule of the body without organs and that distributes states of being and becoming according to domains of presence or zones of intensity For desiring machines are precisely that, the microphysics of the unconscious, the elements of the micro-unconscious. But as such they never exist independently of the historical molar aggregates, of the macroscopic social formations that they constitute statistically. In this sense, there is only desire and the social. Beneath the conscious investments of economic, political, religious, etc., formations, there are unconscious sexual investments, micro-investments that attest to the way in which desire is present in a social field, and joins this field to itself as the statistically determined domain that is bound to it. Desiring machines function within social machines, as though they maintain their own regime in the molar aggregates that they form at the level of large numbers. Symbols and fetishes are manifestations of desiring machines. Sexuality is by no means a molar determination that is representable in a familial whole, it is the molecular underdetermination functioning within social and secondarily familial aggregates that trace desire's field of presence and its field of production, an entire non edible unconscious that will only produce Oedipus as one of its secondary statistical formations, complexes, at the end of a history bringing into play the destiny of social machines, their regime compared to that of desiring machines. 5. Territorial representation While representation is always a social and psychic repression of desiring production, it should be borne in mind that this repression is exercised in very diverse ways, according to the social formation considered. The system of representation comprises three elements that vary in depth, the repressed representative, the repressing representation, and the displaced represented. But the agents, lay instances, that come to carry them into effect are themselves variable, there are migrations in the system. We see no reason for believing in the universality of one and the same apparatus of socio-cultural repression, Rialmini. One can speak instead of a coefficient of affinity that varies in degree between social machines and desiring machines, according to whether their respective regimes are more or less similar, according to whether the desiring machines have a greater or lesser chance of causing their connections and interactions to pass into the regime of the social machines, according to whether the social machines execute more or less of a movement of detachment, de, in relation to the desiring machines, and whether the death-carrying elements remain caught in the machinery of desire, and casted in the social machine, or on the contrary join together to form a death instinct that extends throughout the social machine, crushing desire. The principal factor in each of these respects is the type or genus of social inscription, its alphabet, its characteristics, the inscription on the socius is in fact the agent of a secondary psychic repression, or repression in the proper sense of the term, that is necessarily situated in relation to the desiring inscription of the body without organs, and in relation to the primary repression that the latter already performs in the domain of desire a relation that is essentially variable. There is always social repression but the apparatus of repression varies, depending in particular on what plays the role of the representative on which the repression is brought to bear. In this sense it is possible that the primitive codes, at the moment they are acting on the flows of desire with a maximum of vigilance and extension, binding them in a system of cruelty, maintain an infinitely greater affinity with desiring machines than does the capitalist axiomatic, which nonetheless liberates the decoded flows. This is because in the primitive socius desire is not yet trapped, not yet introduced into a set of impasses, the flows have lost none of their polyvocity and the simple represented in representation has not yet taken the place of the representative. In order to evaluate in every instance the nature of the apparatus and its effects on desiring production, it is therefore necessary to take into account not only the elements of representation as they are organized in depth, but the manner in which representation itself is organized at the surface, on the inscription surface of the socius. Society is not exchangeist, the socius is inscriptive, not exchanging but marking bodies, which are part of the earth. We have seen that the regime of debt directly resulted from this savage inscription. For debt is the unit of alliance, and alliance is representation itself. It is alliance that codes the flows of desire and that, by means of debt, creates for man a memory of words, paroles. It is alliance that represses the great, intense, mute filiative memory, the germinal influx as the representative of the non-coded flows of desire capable of submerging everything. It is debt that articulates the alliances with the filiations that have become extended, in order to form and to forge a system in extension, representation, based on the repression of nocturnal intensities. The alliance debt answers to what Nietzsche described as humanity's prehistoric labor, the use of the cruelest nemotechnics, in naked flesh, to impose a memory of words founded on the ancient biocosmic memory. That is why it is so important to see debt as a direct consequence of the primitive inscription process, instead of making it and the inscriptions themselves into an indirect means of universal exchange. There is a question that Marcel Moss at least left open, is debt primary in relation to exchange, or is it merely a mode of exchange, a means in the service of exchange? but Levi Strauss seems to have closed the question again with a categorical reply, debt is no more than a superstructure, a conscious form whereby the unconscious social reality of exchange is converted into cash. What is involved is not a theoretical discussion of the first principles of anthropology, the whole notion of social practice, and the postulates conveyed by this practice, are at issue here and the whole problem of the unconscious. For if exchange underlies everything, Why is it that what takes place looks like anything but an exchange? Why must it be a gift, or a counter-gift, and not an exchange? And why is it necessary that the giver also be in the position of someone who has been robbed, so as to demonstrate clearly that he does not expect an exchange, not even a deferred exchange? It is theft that prevents the gift and the counter-gift from entering into an exchangeist relation. Desire knows nothing of exchange, it knows only theft and gift, at times the one within the other under the effect of a primary homosexuality. Thus the anti-exchangeist amorous machine encountered by Joyce in Exiles, and by Klausowski in Robert. In Gurma ideology, it is as though a wife could only be given, the litayuatili, or carried away, kidnapped, hence in a certain sense stolen, the lipwotili, Every union that could too manifestly appear to be the result of a direct exchange between two lineages or lineage segments is, in this society, if not prohibited, at least widely disapproved of 30. Will it be said that, if desire knows nothing of exchange, it is because exchange is desires unconscious? Will this be explained by the exigencies of generalized exchange? but what entitles one to declare that shares of debt are secondary compared with a totality that is more real? Yet exchange is known, well known in the primitive socius but as that which must be exorcised, and casted, severely restricted, so that no corresponding value can develop as an exchange value that would introduce the nightmare of a commodity economy. The primitive market operates through bargaining rather than by fixing an equivalent that would lead to a decoding of flows and a collapse of the mode of inscription on the socius. We are brought back to our point of departure, the fact that exchange is inhibited and exorcised by no means attests to its primary reality, but demonstrates on the contrary that the essential process is not exchanging, but inscribing, or marking. And when exchange is made into an unconscious reality, structural rights are invoked in vain along with the necessary inadequation of attitudes and ideologies in relation to this structure for one does nothing more than hypostatize the principles of an exchangeist psychology to account for institutions that on the other hand are recognized to be non-exchangeist. And above all, what is made of the unconscious itself, if not its explicit reduction to an empty form, from which desire itself is absent and expelled? Such a form can serve to define a preconscious, but certainly not the unconscious. For if it is true that the unconscious has no material or content, this is assuredly not because it is an empty form, but rather because it is always and already a functioning machine, a desiring machine and not an anorexic structure. The difference between machine and structure appears in the postulates that implicitly animate the structural and exchangeist conception of the socius, with the correctives that must be introduced into this conception so that the structure is able to function. First of all, when considering kinship structures, it is difficult not to proceed as though the alliances derived from the lines of filiation and their relationships, although the lateral alliances and the blocks of debt condition the extended filiations in the system in extension, and not the opposite. Secondly, there is a tendency to make the system in extension into a logical combinative arrangement, instead of taking it for what it is, a physical system where intensities are distributed, where some cancel out and block a current, where others cause the current to circulate, etc. The objection according to which the qualities developed in the system are not only physical objects, but also honors, responsibilities, privileges, seems to indicate a misunderstanding of the role of the incommensurable elements and the inequalities in the conditions of the system. More precisely, in the third place, the structural exchangeist conception tends to postulate a kind of primary equilibrium of prices, a primary equivalence or equality in the underlying principles, which allows it to explain that the inequalities are necessarily introduced in the consequences. Nothing is more significant in this regard than the controversy between Levi Strauss and Leach concerning the catch and marriage system. Invoking a conflict between the egalitarian conditions of generalized exchange, and its aristocratic consequences, Levi-Strauss acts as though he thought the system were in a state of equilibrium. However, the problem is altogether different, it is a question of knowing if the disequilibrium is pathological and a manifestation of consequences, as Levi-Strauss maintains, or functional and fundamental as Leach thirty-one Is the instability derived in relation to an ideal of exchange, or is it already given in the preconditions, included in the heterogeneity of the terms that compose the prestations and counter-prestations? The more one directs one's attention to the economic and political compromises conveyed by the alliances, to the nature of the counter-prestations that come to compensate the disequilibrium of the prestations of wives, and generally the original manner in which the aggregate of prestations is evaluated in a particular society, the more clearly the necessarily open nature of the system in extension appears, as in the case of the primitive mechanism of surplus value as a surplus value of code. But and this is the fourth point the exchangeist conception finds it necessary to postulate a closed system, statistically closed, and to shore up the structure with a psychological conviction, Confidence that the cycle will reclose. Thus, not only the essential opening of the blocks of debts according to the lateral alliances and the successive generations, but above all the relationship of the statistical formations to their molecular elements, find themselves brought back to the simple empirical reality, insofar as it is not adequate to the structural model. 32. All this depends, finally, on a postulate that burdens ethnology to the same extent that it has determined bourgeois political economy, the reduction of social reproduction to the sphere of circulation. One retains the apparent objective movement as it is described on the socius, without taking into account the real instance that inscribes it, and the forces economic and political with which it is inscribed, one fails to see that alliance is the form in which the socius appropriates the connections of labor in the disjunctive order of its inscriptions. From the viewpoint of the relations of production, in fact, the circulation of women appears as a distribution of labor capacity, but in the ideological representation that the society gives itself of its economic base, this aspect fades before the relations of exchange, which are, however, merely the form this distribution takes within the sphere of circulation, by isolating the moment of circulation in the reproduction process, ethnology ratifies this representation and grants bourgeois economy its whole colonial extension. 33 In this sense, the essential thing seemed to us to be not exchange and circulation, which closely depend on the requirements of inscription, but inscription itself, with its imprint of fire, its alphabet inscribed in bodies, and its blocks of debts. The soft structure would never function, would never cause a circulation, without the hard machinic element that presides over inscriptions.